Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, the province's Auditor General is questioning the Premier's response to COVID-19. According to a new StatsCan survey, the majority of Canadians, 90%, have confidence in their city's policing. And the Prime Minister revealed yesterday that we will not be getting our COVID-19 vaccination till after the United States, France, Germany, the UK, because we just don't make them anymore. Why are we not self-sufficient? It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Loving, living life large on a Wednesday in the red zone. Dancing with myself, my mask, and you can't forget, my hand sanitizer. It's the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson. <laughs> All right, it is 900 CHML. I'm Scott. Hang on a second. I'm going to get the door. Let me get the door. Hang on. Hearing me is bad enough. You don't need to hear the rest of the Thompson household. The Ontario Auditor General is now actually uh, holding a uh, news conference in regard to her report on the Ontario government's handling of the coronavirus pandemic and uh, throwing to light the lack of communication that uh, had gone on uh, in the early stages of this between uh, the Chief Medical Officer of Health and uh, the government and, and, and their inability to get the message out, I guess, at the beginning of all of this. And bring in, uh, uh, let's bring in Sabrina and Angie, reporter with Queen's Park Today, to talk more about all of this. Sabrina, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. Yeah, th- thanks so much. It's a really busy day here at Queen's Park today. So uh, this is uh, very interesting because, again, it's, uh, it's timely in the sense it brings in to light Dr. Williams and, and how this was all set up and the communications between he and government and such uh, just after his uh, was going to retire in February. But now that's been extended to uh, September. But what are you picking out of all of this, especially? She, and I'm sorry to take you away from this press conference, but uh, what are you seeing in all of this as this comes out at this stage of the pandemic? Yeah, I mean, I'm watching the press conference at the same time, so I'll be able to update you guys if there's anything else. But I think, you know, what we've heard so far is pretty, uh, it's pretty damning for the government. You know, the the Auditor General Bonulistic has put out this report, uh, you know, at a very high level. Uh, The Coles notes is basically showing that, you know, Ontario was a lot slower and, uh, you know, more reactive compared to other provinces when it comes to the COVID-19 response. Uh, You know, the health command table that the government is constantly saying that they're basing their, their recommendations on uh, uh, that 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 structure has become overly cumbersome now. Uh, it has ballo- the health table itself has ballooned from about 21 people, you know, at the start of this pandemic to more than 500 people now. Uh, you know, they're having their their meetings, you know, by by video conference. Uh, if if you guys are doing Zoom calls like I've been doing during this pandemic, we know that you know with even way less than 500 people. Those things don't always go so well. Uh, you know, on top of that, they're not properly documenting their meetings. So, so, for, so the question of transparency uh, and people calling for transparency and how the government dis- is making these decisions, um, it doesn't even seem like that's really even there, that, that, that they've been documenting it. Uh, and another, another big part of this report was that the chief medical officer of health, that's Dr. David Williams, um, who's been in headlines, which we can get into uh, you know, more in a, in a bit, but it says that his role was diminished and he did not himself take a leadership role in this. Uh, you know, I think some people at the health command table were even surprised to learn that Dr. David Williams was the co-chair of the table. Uh, You know, some of these meetings weren't dominated by public health expertise. Sometimes it was just the loudest person talking. So I think the timing of this is really interesting because uh, we actually had a very late night debate last night uh, and, and which raised a lot of eyebrows because the government at the same time is trying to extend the term for Dr. David Williams. Uh, You know, to be expired in, in February. Um, this is his five-year term. He was planning to retire, uh, but the government has asked him to stay on, and he's agreed. And this isn't a usual, it's not a typical government appointment, the chief medical officer of health. It's not like cabinet, uh, the government of the day can just decide who they like and appoint them. This needs to be decided on by the legislative assembly. 
needs to be at least a vote um, or maybe like a committee, that type of thing, where, where all MVPs from all parties can have a say in who the top doc is. So we have this controversial motion that the opposition parties say uh, caught them off guard to extend Williams' uh, tenure by about six months. So he'll stay on until next September. Uh, the, the government's idea is that he can get us through this pandemic, you know, the vaccine strategy and that type of thing. Uh, the opposition parties say they're caught off guard. So they denied unanimous consent on this motion. It'll pass anyway because the PCs have a majority, but the, the opposition parties want to at least have a discussion about it. So I think it raised a lot of questions as to why the government sat until midnight to debate it. Uh, they didn't have enough time of debate to pass it. You know, the government tried to sit till 3 a.m. The NDP said no. Um so, so the motion hasn't passed yet. Uh, it, it will pass eventually, but I think, you know, it's, it's probably not the best optics for the government to be talking about, you know, uh, extending this chief medical officer of health position um, at the same time that this auditor general report is coming out. Uh, and I should say that, you know, we have gotten some early response from the health minister. Uh, she, she did say that, you know, this was a mischaracterization, the report. Um, she said she was disappointed in it. Um, but, you know, the, the auditor general just now was telling us that that, that caught her off guard a little bit because, uh, you know, the health ministers, uh, t- top people, her deputy ministers, you know, high level Democrats have all signed off on on the AG's report and, and what the AG's report says. So the AG is standing by her report. Um, but I, I think that the government has a lot to answer for here. Uh, in regard to the extension of uh, uh, Dr. Williams' contract, uh, the government said that uh, during this period of uh, being in a pandemic, rather than installing somebody else and, and changing course, that they wanted to keep him in, in place uh, for another six months. Is, is there logic to that? I mean, I think like, you know, it does make sense. I think even, you know, a lot of people have acknowledged that uh, we don't want to shake things up, our leadership, you know, uh, in the middle of a pandemic and and we need continuity. I I think a lot of people can can understand the government wants to do that. Uh, But, you know, Dr. Williams himself has come under a lot of fire even before this AG report. Um, I think one of the biggest red flags, especially for his critics, um, was the fact that the provincial framework for, for restrictions was you know, dialed back within two weeks of, of it being released, you know, and the AG's report, I should I should add that, that that it confirmed that Public Health Ontario had made recommendations and the provincial framework was, you know, just way higher thresholds than that. So so that they had to be that, that had to be walked back. I think that's that that's the main sticking point for the opposition parties when it comes to Dr. Williams. And the auditor general did point out that uh, it's not necessarily the structure of the role, but it's also the, the person in the role itself. Uh, uh, you know, we have 34 public health units here and Dr. Williams job is to, you know, coordinate the response between all of those. And she said that, you know, communication could have been um, improved. It, it might not mess, like it might take, you know, looking at the role itself. Um, but the AG seems to say that it's uh, that, that it has been diminished for, for a lot of reasons. And so I think that uh, for, for the government to be able to have the public, you know, um, believe in their response and stand behind their response, they're going to need confidence in Dr. Williams. And this really is, uh, this really is poking holes in that. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong here, uh, Sabrina, but at the very beginning of all of this, in, in the first wave, I remember uh, the premier questioning Dr. Williams and his inability once the supplies came in to get the testing done and and was very uh, concerned that it, you know, even though uh, they got what they needed, they were having a hard time executing all of this. Is that accurate at the beginning of all of this? Uh, I, I might push you back a little bit on that, but, you know, like... Ford has has stood by Dr. Williams, um, yeah. and 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 he has acknowledged that you know some of the advice is a little confusing. Um, for instance, you know the the social bubbles. It didn't really make sense when schools re- were reopening, but the ten person social bubble was still in place. And the premier has has you know acknowledged it um, when when he's standing up at the podium. He's like because a lot of these things just seem like common sense and they're a bit confusing and, and muddled messaging, which the government has acknowledged, but. He hasn't really put the blame on on somebody. And, you know, we are hearing him, at least at this point now, is, is standing by Dr. Williams. I think he said, uh, you know, he's a great dance partner. But the opposition mm-hmm. is now, you know, pounced on that comment because 
they're saying that, you know, well, the premier obviously thinks the top doc is a great dance partner because he lets the premier lead. And so I think uh, that that's one other major point that the auditor general has sort of suggested in this report is that it seems like the response has been, uh, you know, cabinet and not necessarily based on the public health expertise. And there's a lot of factors in that. But I think it's at the end of the day, you could look at this report and say, you know, the the onus on this pandemic response uh, really falls to the, the premier. Yeah, and, and many have questioned communication, uh, uh, you know, since day one uh, of all of this. Getting back to uh, the Minister of Health's uh, response to this, and obviously, is that why we're seeing the press conference now with the Auditor General? It's sort of her response to the response? Yeah, it's a little it's a little bit of weird timing. I should t- I should tell you, you know, I've covered a lot of Auditor General reports. Um, they they never they never make any government look good, no matter who's in, in power. Yeah, um, yeah. But it, it is a little unusual for the ministers to come up and respond before the Auditor General talks about her report. Um, so I think, uh, but it is typical, you know, for her to for her to stay here for her to for her to talk to reporters about her report and that type of thing. But I think you know having the minister up there first to defend it. Um, you know, Bonnie Lissick, the AG, she's obviously going to get questions um, defending her report. But I will say this isn't the first government that's fought the Auditor General. You know, uh, I don't want to get into too much pension accounting details. It's a little, it's a little uh, dry and boring. But, you know, the, the former liberal government had had a problem with how she had, you know, accounted for pension, uh, pension right. assets. And uh, that that really made a huge difference on the government's bottom line. And there was a huge uh, back and forth between the liberal government and and the auditor general. So I will say it's not necessarily anything new, but it does seem like it's a pretty staunch um, stance against what's in this report from coming from the government. Uh, the minister, Minister Elliott, said uh, despite all of that, Ontario per capita still has the best numbers and some of the most strict regulations. How does that weigh into all of this in your mind? Yeah, they they have been uh, using that line quite a bit lately. Uh, they've been, uh, the, you know, the premier's uh, director of communication tweets out, you know, the per capita numbers across Canada, and and I think you know, comparing Ontario to the other provinces, it might it might uh, you know give the sense that we're doing better. But I don't know if that's something necessarily to to brag about. You know, there we had today, you know, uh, among like the highest you know number of deaths that we've had from from the beginning. I think. Uh, that's that's not necessarily an excuse people are willing to buy. I think at this point, um, you know that they're. I think especially this AG report, you know, showing how these decisions are being made, and it's really just like a confusing mess, sort of, is, is what she's described in her report here. That I think that that's, uh, you know, that's that's really going to make a lot of Ontarians sit up and think, well, you know, we could be doing a lot better than than you know this than how we are doing now. Uh, the, the Auditor General also looking to Bonnie Henry in BC as as certainly having the communications part of this down, and I think they you know they had a less severe first wave. I don't know if it was a result of that, but certainly many complimented her on on the communication uh, with British Columbia through uh, the first stage of all of this. And often people point to uh, British Columbia as you know the province that. It's doing it right. That being said, um, you know, they're getting hit quite hard now uh, with the second wave. And, you know, to the point where just recently put in a, a mask bylaw. I mean, the masks, the mandatory mask situation, everybody's talking about Alberta, but uh, it, B.C. just started masks and masking in schools at the end of last week. So uh, and again, or I believe are with along with Alberta are one of the only provinces that aren't in on the app yet. So is this about communication or is this about a different situation? system, a different setup. How do you compare those two when, you know, obviously, as you said, it's tough to compare different provinces and such, but anything there to be learned? Yeah, I think, um, you know, I, I think, yeah, the, the thing that makes, you know, Ontario look a little, uh, you know, doesn't look so great is, is that the Auditor General did compare to other provinces quite a bit. You mentioned, I think a lot of people in Ontario were like, but I thought that was more due masking, right? But yeah, but I think it's more of, um, of, you know, like how quick other provinces were to respond and that, you know, some of them did have a bit of a a leg up because they had these structures in place already and 
you know, um, from previous governments that that wasn't done in Ontario. So there is some, a bit of a systemic element here. But also uh, Alberta, for instance, uh, they didn't get their first case until March, I think. But in January, they had set up, you know, their their COVID command structure, whereas Ontario had a first case in January and their command structure wasn't set up until the end of February. So mm-hmm. I think it, it when it comes to comparing us to other provinces, it's not necessarily the the case counts and, and that type of thing. It's more of, you know, how did the government respond? Um, how quickly were they to respond and how effective was that was that response is, is I think the auditor general's is the auditor general's point of it. Sabrina Nanji has been with us, reporter with Queen's Park today. Sabrina, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thanks, you too. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. As you know, a demonstration continuing at the forecourt of City Hall, uh, asking for uh, the group asking for uh, defunding of the police by uh, 50% in order to put that money towards uh, social housing uh, and such. Uh, oddly enough, uh, Stats Canada, uh, a new study out from them saying the majority of Canadians in the province have reported confidence in the police uh in 2019 what does that mean when we hear of so many people who are calling for a change and a shift and 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 what is going on uh at the end of the day i i think this discussion is being had by those on the extremes and it's time for us to come to the uh, center and and find a solution here somewhere uh let's bring in gregory brown phd adjunct research professor department of sociology and anthropology department of law and legal studies carleton university and is with us now greg thanks for the time i hope you're doing well i am scott thank you so it's interesting because uh you know we often hear uh negative things about our police uh especially in the wake of of the george floyd killing uh down south of the border and and the messaging that's come up from there are you surprised to see these numbers that that uh, roughly 90 percent of canadians have a, a confidence in the police no, I'm not surprised, Scott. This has been borne out in uh, many, many uh, public opinion uh, studies done, uh, you know, every couple of years in Canada and even the United States. The the general opinion of police is very favorable, despite some of these controversial episodes. And uh, and so I'm not surprised. I think it just validates uh, that that Canadian police are generally doing doing a very good job at a very difficult job. And that's recognized by the vast majority of the public. Of course, we always have uh, people that don't share that uh, that view of the police, and they have a very loud voice uh, presently. Are or is the media presenting an unbalanced story here? Because again, many would think that this is getting out of hand. Hearing the message, I've heard many say, "You know, you can't compare the United States to Canada," uh, but that doesn't mean the same problems don't exist here at some other sort of level. Uh, so, is there biased coverage of this with with the media? I'm not sure it's an intentional bias to to frame the narrative in one particular way or the other, but. But certainly whenever uh, somebody comes forward or a small group of people come forward purported to be representatives of a larger group of, of individuals, I've always been curious at the terminology, you know, community or communities and somewhat confused. Are we a community or are we a whole bunch of different communities? But, but when, it, when a small group of people comes forward and suggest they represent a very large group, uh, especially on these controversial topics and with social media today, uh, the media has to cover cover something and so if there's a demonstration as you're having in in your city um, that's newsworthy the media covers it uh, the representativeness of the of the spokespersons for these uh, aggrieved communities is, is sort of what I'm driving at you know how representative uh, are the the activists that are expressing this point of view how representative are they of uh, of the community they, they suggest they represent you know, it's interesting because, uh, you know, the position of those that are uh, occupying City Hall right now is to fund the police by 50 percent, put that towards uh, 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 affordable housing or free housing for uh, those that are, are homeless. And, and you know, I, I think that, uh, and I may be wrong on this, you can correct me, um, you know, Canadians, are, I think this is something they're concerned about and there's something and this is something they want to get ahead of. But I think as soon as you say, a, a broad statement like we're going to fu- defund the police by 50% and put that to housing, does that oversimplify the issue? 
Well, I think it does, uh, frankly. Um, I'm not sure if the reallocation of funds away from police to other to other uh, social services that are that are very much uh, in need in need of of additional funding, if the public really understands what that might entail and some of the consequences in terms of um, traditional police functions, you know, crime fighting functions in the community, where I think the the, the real issue here is is around mental health and. Um, uh, you know, I, I'm not old enough to remember the time when it, across Ontario we had specific facilities uh, where, uh, you know, there's no need to candy coat it in the historical context. Uh, people with severe mental health challenges that were struggling were essentially warehoused in these facilities. Yeah. And at some point as a collective society, we decided that was inhumane. And so we, we closed a lot of those facilities and we released people out into the community with the promise that there was going to be community-based uh, mental health services. And somewhere along the way, uh, they forgot about that second part. So we closed facilities, released people into the community, but we don't provide any services, uh, certainly not ex- not an adequate level of service for people uh, struggling with mental health challenges in the community. And I think that's where this really uh, dovetails in with the with the conversation about policing because by default the police have become the mental health services delivery mechanism in our society and that's probably not appropriate. I'm not sure if taking money away from a police budget and and putting it over into mental health is is the way to go. I think probably we'd want to uh, augment the the existing funding for the community based mental health services, which would reduce the amount of interaction with the police and some of the controversial episodes that we see. Yeah, you know, it, it seems that our tone has changed on this, and, and whether the George Floyd incident uh, was was a, a tipping point for this or not, I, I'm not sure. Um, but but it seemed prior to that, uh, for years, the tone has always been, you know, police aren't qualified. They need more training. They need more, you know, they need to know more about cybersecurity. Uh, they need to be more aware of bullying. They need to be more aware of terrorism threats. They need to be more aware of mental health. Uh, you know, there's a situation here in Hamilton where they would try to get mental health workers along with the police during these calls and such. So it seemed for the longest time we kept asking these men and women to do more and more and more and more and more and then complain when it doesn't work out. And and then all of a sudden say, well, let's take all the money away. So how can you right. suck and blow at the same time? Either you're going to fund them to do all of these things other than policing or, or, or now it's the opposite thing. Well, we're going to take 50% of their money away. It just doesn't seem to add up. Sure. Well, you've hit right on the, the sentiment expressed by by police officers across the country. Who I speak to hundreds of police officers typically uh, daily, and this is a prevalent uh, emotion that they're experiencing. You know, we, we keep getting asked to do more and more and more. This job is becoming com- more and more complex. You know, every month there's a new sort of flavor of the month and a new type of training and a new skill set that we're expected to develop. And, and that's just unrealistic. I mean, we don't expect anybody in society to have a Ph.D. in math, engineering, physics, uh, historical literature and uh, fine art. You know, so there's only a certain amount of skills that you can train police officers to do, which is why I think maybe uh, letting them work more towards their core function and perhaps having mental health services delivered by experts in mental health services. Another alternative would be to train police officers. If if we're talking about fiscal issues and, and expensive things, I mean, you could certainly train 20% of your frontline Hamilton officers uh, to get a PhD in clinical psychology or a master's in social work. That would maybe better equip them to deal with somebody in a mental health crisis. But I think Rather than defunding, you'd be talking about supplementing the budget uh, quite a substantial amount. When I taught at the State University of New York uh, in Albany, uh, about a quarter of my students in the graduate program were uh, serving New York State uh, troopers that are sent to to get a Ph.D. uh, and paid, and and that's what they do full-time in their job. They go back and work on the road in the summertime, but uh, but this was their, uh, their training rationale. So obviously, um, there's an issue here, whether it's a communication issue, a PR, PR issue. Um, uh, many are questioning systemic racism within in the police force and just the systemic policies that are that are there. What do police services need to do to help this situation? 
Well, I think the key is uh, is to, to listen to these conversations. The people that are expressing a grievance, uh, you know, have a, have a viewpoint, and that's certainly not going away. Um, like any other occupation, and I poke fun sometimes at my academic colleagues who sometimes forget that, uh, that the academic world isn't exactly pristine in terms of some of the challenges. And so, so you're never going to be able to completely eradicate bias and prejudice amongst a, a small number of, of police and just recognizing that reality and trying to mitigate that with some other programming. So I'm a supporter of, of ideas around bias training and educating officers about other cultures and, and so on and so forth. But I think another area that's neglected and once again, it's an expensive item, but a lot of these controversial episodes involve police use force transactions. And so if we want our police to, to perform perfectly in use of force transactions, because, of course, when somebody is engaging you physically, you're in a physical confrontation, a fight. It's quite animated. It can have serious consequences. You can get yeah. killed in a fight or seriously injured. And we have officers that are responding uh, in terms of their use of force out of the emotion of the moment. You know, it's highly stressful. Your thought process has become less complex, very straightforward. It's sort of a fight-or-flight scenario. And so what I've, what I've been advocating is we invest much more money in police training. Teach officers to be extremely proficient at use of force. So things like martial arts, black belts, and lots and lots of reps on highly stressful use of force interactions. And so that when something transpires in the field, the officer has trained to that scenario over and over and over again and what we'll see then on a video recording will be a very professional police use of force you won't see the kind of gratuitous violence or some of the the types of things that happen when somebody's not confident in their skills and i think that would really reduce a lot of these controversial episodes We've heard uh, voices from Black Lives Matter that say, you know, it, it's different for their community when they get pulled over by police. They have to, the parents have to have talks with the kids about how to act and 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 what to do. And and this is systemic racism within uh, the police services. Is that accurate? How do how do police react to that? Well, I think police, uh, like anybody in society, take great offense at being labeled. Uh, with a very broad brush as, you know, racist. Certainly in my experience with, with policing, uh, I've seen very limited uh, episodes that you could categorize as racism. It's a live topic, and so uh, there's a lot of training going on. I think officers, for the most part, are not racist. Uh, whether there's systemic policies and procedures that still exist, rem- remnants of uh, colonial sort of uh, philosophies from centuries ago, that that's an issue that's being debated uh, in the community and in academia. I'm not sure everybody has a different position on that. But but it's a live issue. Officers are very sensitive. And one of the interesting uh, sort of outcomes from this, measured in my recent uh, empirical research with almost 4,000 frontline officers in Canada and the U.S., is actually a reversal of this idea of driving while black, uh, in that the police are, are picking on certain communities because of their race or ethnicity, in terms of de-policing, officers, you know, thousands of officers are telling me that they are intentionally avoiding interactions with minority communities because they're fearful of a complaint and being accused of, of racist behavior. So there's almost a, a reverse impact going on right now in terms of police interaction with minority communities. Do we support our police? I mean, obviously, uh, this this Stats Canada survey, 90% are confident in police. Uh, is this like the silent majority? I think that's exactly what, what this represents. Uh, in the intro to your piece, I mean, you were talking about the, the recent StatsCan information. That's replicated over and over and over in, in virtually every jurisdiction across Canada that shows very high levels, significant proportions of the majority fully supportive of the police. They express that they think their officers are doing a good job. And that's nothing's changed because of some of these recent isolated uh, controversies. What about when you divide this down into those various communities? Well, then you start to get, a, you know, you have to drill into the data and see. I mean, I think when something becomes an animated conversation within a, a minority community, certainly it may take on some traction. There may be a higher proportion. But even when you start uh, digging into the, the race, ethnicity of survey respondents, uh, the majority of, of minority communities uh, support their police yeah. officers as well. 
So this is, although maybe not to the same degree, is accurate through most of the communities. It is. In some of the more controversial American jurisdictions uh, where they've uh, flirted with the idea of defunding, there's actually been uh, a public backlash uh, recently talking about, actually, we need more cops and we need to, to, to facilitate more police officers in these highly problematic, high crime communities, which often because of socioeconomic factors, uh, coincidentally turn out to be minority communities. And, and so a lot of people in those communities are saying, to the contrary of defunding the police, we need more cops in our, in our community. Where do you think this discussion is going? Um, Because, again, it seems like police are getting a black eye here, although, as we mentioned, the silent majority doesn't necessarily think that. Well, they don't think that. That's what the Stats Canada survey proves. Um, But but, but where is this going? I mean, is it it cultivated out of the United States? Is it, uh, uh, again, uh, voices being heard who weren't heard before, who who should be heard, but perhaps proportionally, um, you know, these numbers are, are inaccurate or the, the situations are inaccurate as compared to the states where does this go well i think where we're going and i think we've seen it play out since uh, the post floyd sort of pandemonium we're seeing i think people calm down a bit the emotion is is fading and now we're into a much more constructive conversation because of course the police uh, represent the public the police report to the public and so really the police take their marching orders from the, the communities that they serve. And so there's always an available conversation for the police to do things differently, maybe to take on different responsibilities or shed responsibilities we've given them over a, a period of time. And so I think we're into this period now of sort of more deliberative contemplation. I think uh, academics such as myself, we're having some enlightened conversations about where do we go now? We, we've recognized that there is some need for for reform in the police, but what exactly does that what does that mean? And that's what we're discussing and, and debating right now. Greg Brown has been with us, PhD, adjunct research professor, Department of Sociology and Anthropology, Department of Law and Legal Studies at Carleton University. Greg, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Always nice to be with you, Scott. Take care. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. The Prime Minister said this yesterday, very, very off the cuff, as if we all knew this. And, oh, yeah, by the way, you know, we're not getting the vaccination till after the United States and after the UK and a whole pile of other countries because we just don't make vaccinations anymore. Remember when being self-sufficient was a good thing? Somehow that's not positive anymore. We get everybody else to do our dirty work, whether it's making, manufacturing things that pollute the air or something that we need to save our lives, like PPE or vaccinations. Do we even refine our own gasoline anymore? No, uh, we instead buy it from dirty countries who have much less high standards than we do. Again, you know, we, we stand here and we look at us. Our poo don't stink. We are the envy of the world. It's all packaging. It's all smoke and mirrors. It's all, uh, you know, I mean, we can't even support ourselves. We can't even look after ourselves. We're not even self-sufficient. And yet yesterday, the prime minister stands up and says, you know, uh, when the reporter asked him the question, how come those in America are getting their vaccinations? They're starting with the most vulnerable and the frontline workers, all of that sort of thing. But they're starting before Christmas. Just like Donald Trump promised, well, sort of, and we're not getting ours till the new year. And the premier said, "Very well, we don't make it anymore. You knew that, didn't you? So, of course, they're going to make sure all their citizens, not all of them, but they've got a good start on their citizenry before they move to helping others. That just makes sense. Unfortunately, we're the only, one of the only countries that just doesn't do anything like this anymore. We get other people to do our dirty work. We get other people to, 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 to make the things. We ship out natural resources and then buy back the finished product and wonder where our jobs are gone, have gone. So, you know, I found I, I was literally listening to this press conference the other day. Like it was like 15 minutes before we went before airtime. And I couldn't believe it. It's like, why is this just coming to light now? You know, he's standing up and saying, well, we've secured this, we've secured that, we bought all these, we bought that, we've done this. That's what we do. We got lots of money in Canada. We just buy things. We don't make them anymore. And then didn't say, but yeah, we're going to get it after them. You know, we're spending too much time on fashionable issues 
when really we're supposed to be thinking about health, jobs, the economy, education for our kids, and instead we're solving the world's problems. Again, uh, you can't have programs without prosperity. And here we are, we can't even supply ourselves in times of need. Here's the clip that what the Prime Minister had to say yesterday on vaccines not even being made here. One of the things to remember is Canada no longer has any domestic production capacity for vaccines. Um, we uh, used to have it uh, decades ago, but um, we no longer have it. Uh, countries like the United States, Germany and the UK uh, do have domestic pharmaceutical facilities, which is why um, they're obviously going to prioritize helping their citizens first. So Canada did two things uh, over the past months. Uh, first of all, we've begun to invest once again in ensuring that Canada will have domestic vaccine production capacity because uh, we never want to be uh, caught short again without the ability to support Canadians directly. And that will be in place uh, in the coming years. Uh, if ever there is another pandemic, we uh, will not be, uh, be caught on the wrong foot again. But secondly, that's why recognizing the challenges we had around getting vaccines from other countries to Canada, the Canadian government signed a record number of agreements with vaccine producers, potential, va potential vaccine producers around the world. We have uh, reached out uh, and have actually one of the very best vaccine portfolios of any country around the world with far more doses uh, for Canadians potentially than we actually have Canadian population. That's because we don't know which uh, vaccines are going to be most effective, which ones are going to arrive early, but we have done everything we can to ensure that Canadians get these vaccines as quickly as possible and uh, as effectively as possible. So, uh, again, uh, it was just a few weeks ago uh, where the Prime Minister would constantly roll out how we've purchased more and more and more and more of these vaccines and how he has just stated he has they actually have overpurchased. Uh, well, that doesn't make up for the fact that we're still getting it two months late or, or, or cannot and do not have the ability to produce this on our own. You know, and again, the Prime Minister was to have a throne speech that was to reset and possibly trigger another election and what the next world will look like and what the, you know, the next Canada will look like and how this is a chance to, to reset everything. And, you know, I, I really appreciate the, the the focus that this prime minister has on social issues, especially because he grew up with a silver spoon in his mouth. So a lot of rich people, the way they alleviate their guilt is to be very, uh, you know, uh, be very giving, be very charitable. And that's great. But he's missing. He can't identify with the middle class. He has no idea. He knows what the less fortunate, what the 10% or the 20% of the population and need focus, need help. But it's the rest of us that are the engine that drives all of that. Former NDP leader Bob Ray said, you can't have programs without prosperity. And it seems that, that, that the prime minister keeps coming up with these fuddle-duddle ideas that again are, are, are social issues that all need to be addressed. But when you ask the electorate before an election, what are the most important issues in the election? Their health care, jobs, the economy, education for our kids, inequality, injustice, climate change, they're all there. But without those top three or four, you have none of that. And instead, what we've become is a very fashionable nation. Look at us. Look at our prime minister. Look at how he's sticking up for feminists or feminism. Look how he's sticking up for the indigenous community. Meanwhile, we've got hell going on in Caledonia, and nobody has seen hide or, hell, uh, or tail of, of the uh, federal government. You know, if you're preaching that you're all about women and you're preaching that you're all about truth and reconciliation, shouldn't this be one of the main issues, not only in Ontario, but Canada?
because it's been festering for years. And we only have to go back 15 years to the Douglas Creek uh, estate situation. Where is the progress there? We, we talk a good game. You know, we've got lot, we, we, we feel good in front of the rest of the world, but we can't even supply PPE. And now we don't even make a vaccination. All we do is pay for everything. You know, we've driven all the dirty business, bad, bad, dirty business out of Canada. And then we buy the finished product back from countries who don't have the standards we do, just so we can feel good about ourselves. So we can feel great that we're cleaning up the planet. Really? Or is it just the, the utopian vision of a drama teacher born into a very wealthy family? who now feels it's his turn to provide this utopian vision, this reset for Canada. I hope his reset for Canada is making us self-sufficient. I hope his reset for Canada includes being able to manufacture the basic needs we need to survive so we're not held hostage by other countries to get supplies. Well, you're giving tons of them to China in the early stages of this pandemic. Where are the priorities with this government? Where are the priorities with Canadian people? Enough of the fuddle-duddle. Get your head out of the clouds. We got to have our health. We have to have our job. We need an economy, an education, and a future for our kids. It's not a chance to all of a sudden, ooh, let's shift everything this way so I can feel better about myself. So we can feel like we're contributing to something. How can you contribute to the rest of the world when you can't even look after your own people? And just, yeah, you, you know, you know, we don't make this stuff anymore. We don't make anything. You know, we, we, we've seen this in Ontario. The manufacturing industry go to heck in a handbasket. So, uh, you know, again, I think it's time we prioritize things. COVID-19 has taught us what is important in life. Health, jobs, the economy, education of our kids. You know, let's put up the decorations later. Let's save the world later. But again, you know, we, we've got a, 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 a figurehead that is more interested in solving world issues than those exist right here in our own country. And that's not populism. That's just smart democracy. We've left ourselves vulnerable. But boy, we feel real good because we're the envy of the world. Do you think we're the envy of the world now? I'm not sure. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let's bring in Ian Lee, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University, and talk about this vaccination issue. Ian, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I'm very well, thanks, Scott. Uh, do you think Canadians were stunned when the Prime Minister nonchalantly said uh, yesterday that, oh, yeah, by the way, we're going to have to wait behind these guys because they're going to hit their own people first. And, you know, we don't even make these things anymore. We don't make vaccinations anymore. That's right. Like, I almost uh, fell off my chair. I, I shouldn't be laughing, but I mean, I, I heard your, your commentary, and uh, there was an enormous amount of truth there. I mean, let me make it big picture, because that's the way I am. The World Bank publishes a, an annual list, very highly respected, listing all the countries of the world called Ease of Doing Business, and you're ranked. Well, we used to be in the top five, ease of doing business. This is all the regulatory barriers and environmental restrictions and, and all that sort of thing. We were number five. We've dropped over the last five years down to number 23. Now, we're still up there. You know, there's many countries we're better than many countries in the developing world. But the critical country is the United States because they're right next door. They're our competitor. They're number six on the list. We're number 23. So there you are, a business person who's going to build a new plant. Let's call it a, 
a pharmaceutical plant to make vaccines and pharmaceutical products. And you can look at a big market next door called the United States with 330 million, and it's number six on the list, meaning it's pretty easy to do business there. That's what that means. And we're way down at number 23. And what are, what, what's the average investor going to say? Gee whiz, you know, they're making it really tough to do business in Canada. Maybe I should just go to the States because it's a lot easier to do business there. And this has nothing to do with Trump. I'm not getting into that. This, this uh, report has been published by the World Bank for 20, 25 years. I've been using it in my classes every year. And they rank every country in the world, or almost all the countries of the world. And we are getting worse and worse. Our ranking is going down, which means it's more and more difficult to do business in Canada. And let me throw one more point at you, and I know I may upset some of your listeners, but Salavi, I speak truth to power, and I don't consult any of these companies, I assure you. I don't get any money from them. But we passed a bill by Parliament of oh, 10, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, uh, that um, allows the government of Canada, which it does, to regulate pharmaceutical prices. And we can say, rah, 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 isn't that great? Because those big, bad, rich companies, they're not going to stick it to us. Well, now we want them to come here and build a plant uh, to make the products that we, the government is then going to regulate the price of much lower than they would get in the States. So guess what they're saying? We're not building plants in Canada to build pharmaceuticals. Are you crazy? I'll go build in the States. And then we'll export it to Canada. And that's what's happening. And you were bang on on that. It just seems that we're eating ourselves. And, and you know, I've been doing this long enough through enough elections and we get the polls uh, and the surveys every uh, before every election of what everybody's priority is. And the priorities are always the same for the top four or five things. And that's health care, jobs, yeah. the economy, taxes, education for your kids, opportunity. Yeah. And then, of course, climate change and, and inequality and all those grand things that make us feel good. But those are the basic things. And it just seems this government is completely oblivious to this and instead talking about a reset that involves uh, climate change and inequality which again are important issues but we can't even look after ourselves here we don't make our own ppes we don't make our own vaccines and and and, like i mean the energy industry is a great example we ship all the crap out we let them do the dirty work and then we come buy the stuff back without any without any guilt or, or dirt on our hands you are absolutely right, and I just don't want any of your listeners to think that I am advocating, therefore, let's shut down the government and not have them regulate. That is not the issue. Of course we want safe products. Of course we want clean air. But they're going, I argue, and I think you're arguing, but I know I am arguing, that they're going beyond that. They're trying to develop standards that are so high that no other country in the world has reached those levels. And, 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 and what it's going to do is just simply send business out of the country. You know, there's a report that was just uh, leaked today in Ottawa that the energy department, I think it's the energy department in Ottawa, sent a document into cabinet saying, look, you need a carbon tax of 150%. It, it would drive the cost of gasoline through the roof and the cost of heating your house, and the cost of, you know, the, the, the energy for a plant. And, and so, of course, we want clean air. Of course we do. Of course we want safe drugs. But we're not talking about that. This isn't about acquiring unsafe food or unsafe drugs. This is about them imposing standards that are so high, that are so far out beyond all other countries, that it's going to drive these companies out. They'll say, look, I can go next door. And anyone who thinks that Mr. Biden, okay, yes, he's vastly nicer than Trump. Biden's not a racist. He's not homophobic. He's not sexist like Trump was. But anyone who thinks that he's going to shut down the oil and gas industry tomorrow morning or shut down the pharmaceutical industry is simply delusional. He is going to be a very centrist, pro-business president. And they're going to be probably happier than clams if we continue down this road in Canada, putting ever more stringent standards and regulations in place that simply cause the firms to say, look, at the end of the life cycle of my plant, when I've got, you know, I've finished the plants, come to its end, I don't have to rebuild here. I can just move across the border 150 kilometers away and put it in Ohio or upstate New York or Pennsylvania. And they're right next door. And most of these are American companies to start with. So I think he's playing with fire, 
Mr. Trudeau's playing with fire and his zeal to create this sort of perfect paradise in Canada, it, it, it could come at great expense to the average Canadian. Uh, just to hell out balance here, uh, I had read somewhere that uh, somebody blamed Mulroney for this because he allowed the sale of the one company that was producing these sorts of products. But you can't stop companies from, they're mobile today. Capital is yeah. mobile. You can't stop, It's not, we're not in, in Soviet, Soviet Russia or, or North Korea where you can tell a company they can't move. They have the full right to close down a plant and move. We may not like it. So for it. you, it's not about closing and, and allowing those things to sail. It's about creating an environment that's welcome enough. To allow them to come here in a in a in a world where where capital is fairly free, I mean very free, companies are free, so are people. Highly educated people can cross borders. Our doctors go to the states all the time, and you can't stop. It's not like the Soviet Union where you literally stop people and say you may not travel to another country. But we don't run that kind of a system, a totalitarian system. If companies want to close their doors because they think they can do business better in France or Germany or the United States, they have the full freedom to do so. They'll take the loss if they do, closing their plant, paying off the people they're laying off. But the point is you cannot prevent a company from going somewhere else. So how come we can have drug companies here and they're producing generic drugs, whatever, but nobody's producing a vaccine? What will it take to get that to happen? I'm going to be very blunt now, uh, Scott, and I'm not sugarcoating it. I don't think it's going to happen. I don't think it's going to happen, partly because of the regulatory regime that regulates the price, which has always been a very strong thorn with pharmaceutical companies and the research I've done and read. Um, And again, why would you come, if you can get twice as much or 50% more making the very identical product in the States, why would you build it here for one half lap? I mean, it's the same thing as somebody listening to this show. Are you going to work at... $50 $50 an hour at GM, or are you going to work down the road at $10 an hour in a, a little small business? I mean, you're going to go to where you're paid. You're going to go where you can make money. And and so I don't think, given the, the play, our taxes are, are, are higher, our productivity is lower in Canada, and uh, we regulate the prices, which they don't. And so I don't quite frankly and very bluntly, I don't think we're going to be seeing a factory that makes pharmaceutical. Hmm. I don't mean the generic, you're absolutely right, not the uh, generics in the aftermarket. I'm talking branded, so-called branded uh, products and including vaccines. I don't think they're going to be built, made here. Ian Lee, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. As always, Ian, thanks so much for the time. Be well. My pleasure, Scott. Thanks. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.